Hello and welcome to the 19th episode of Wildfire Matters, the podcast that covers all aspects of wildland fire management for the Bureau of Land Management or BLM. We talk with the people who help manage and protect our public lands, many dedicating their lives to the profession. Today we are coming to you for our second part of this two-part series on Alaska Fire Service. And I'm actually in Alaska talking with some folks up here that are members of Alaska Fire Service, BLM employees. And to start off with this episode, we have Ray Crow, who is our acting branch operations. So branch chief for fire operations. Yep. Yes. And also you are the Alaska Interagency Coordination Center Center Manager. That's yes. your normal job, but yep. you're acting as branch chief. Yep. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get started just talking about um, how you got started in fire. And okay. welcome. All right. <laughs> uh, so I started uh, at actually a volunteer fire department right outside of Badger Gate there uh, when I was in high school. And I started seeing some uh, advertisements for this thing called the North Star Fire Crew. No idea what it was, and uh, got on with the local Fairbanks uh, EFF crew uh, across town. Did that for an assignment or two, and then got on with the North Stars in 1990, uh, and then transitioned over to the Chena Hotshots shortly thereafter during the season there. It was a pretty big fire season in Alaska that year. I uh, did the hotshotting for a number of years, uh, moved over into the fire specialist program, uh, and then moved up into that rank as well uh, as a lead fire specialist. Uh, did that for a couple of years and then over into the uh, Galena zone as an EFF crew coordinator in 2004. So that was a record year for Alaska, mobilizing a number of uh, type two crews that we had for the number of fires that we had. Uh, I think it was six million plus acres that were burned that year. So we kept all of our type two crews busy that year. And back in those days, it was 16 person uh, crews that were immobilized out of the villages there. And in Galena at that time, there was 19 uh, type two crews that we could field. Uh, so we kept them all fairly busy. Uh, and then I moved back over into running a brand new hotshot crew here at Alaska Fire Service, uh, Denali Hotshots. Did that for a couple of years. Uh, and then as things happen, <laughs> get a little bit too old, too slow for the hotshot world. So I moved into the uh, coordination. Uh, so I've moved out to the Galena zone as a zone coordination officer, uh, did that. And then a new position opened up in AICC as a logistics coordinator for the Forest Service for Region 10. Uh, did that for a couple of years. And then the uh, position that I was I'm in uh, ASCC manager opened up, and so I took that uh, about 11 years ago. And because uh, what I try to do is challenge myself uh, personally and professionally to continue to grow and learn. Uh, so one of the things that I'm proud of doing is the uh, BLM Leadership Academy. I did that, uh, and then moving about. Uh, so you know, with the 456 series coming in. This was the position I'm in, the branch chief for fire operations is considered a one-off. It's not a standardized PD. There's nothing like this else in the country. So, yeah, so this 456 is a new, new series for fire, fire. wildland fire. Yeah. So with that, uh, it's, it has to get classified and all that stuff there. So 
uh, I had asked if I could come on over uh, and work in fire operations, uh, kind of where I started in, uh, back in the day and uh, overseeing the air attack program, uh, the fire medic program, the hot shots, the fire specialists, and the smoke jumper program uh, up here in Alaska. So mm -hmm. that's kind of my how I got to this point. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned EFF employees um, or, or crews. So that's mainly, um, can you describe that? Like, yep. what, what does that mean? So it used to be in Alaska, uh, we had a 72 uh, emergency firefighter crews uh, located out in the villages throughout Alaska. So basically, and they were all located, you know, kind of where fire occurrence happened uh, is kind of how they kind of got uh, picked and all that stuff there. Uh, a pretty heavy program that we had between the state of Alaska and Alaska Fire Service. Uh, and then as time moves on, I think cultures changed a bit. Uh, the requirements for the Type 2 crews got to where it was no longer sustainable. Uh, so I think we're in the current model that we have right now. So, uh, Which is? Contract crews. Oh. So it's a pretty big deal for uh, the folks in the villages to be on fire crews. And, you know, they the quality of work that they do has stepped up quite a bit there. When they switch to this model, it seems like the Type 2 crews are being asked to extend, uh, which is uh, pretty nice to see. That means that, you know, the fires that they're working on, they want to keep them around because of the work they're making out. So that's how I got to where I'm at. So. All right. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about how you got started and where you're at now. Can you explain or describe fire operations, like what you're currently doing for okay. Alaska Fire Service? So how that works? Yep. So fire operations there, it's basically the boots on the ground. Uh, so it's all the folks that are on the fire crews, the smoke jumpers, the fire specialists, uh, the air attacks, and the fire medics there. They're all the ones that you know, going out to the fire and suppressing the fire. Uh, so getting them trained up, ready to go in the springtime, making sure all, all the hiring is taken care of and the qualifications meet the uh, standards for like our hotshot crews being the type one crews, our fire specialists, uh, getting the training experience to move up uh, within the organization or within the fire, pro fire program nationally. And we have some folks that were in that program that have definitely grown quite a bit and our hotshot crews. So it's a, you know, the North Star fire crew. Uh, so that's our type two training crew. Basically what they do is they take folks off the street, train them to be hotshot crew members. Uh, that's how I started. And it was, uh, it's challenging for sure. I was right out of high school, no idea what I was stepping into. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was pretty exciting riding on helicopters, going out fighting fires throughout all of Alaska, and then getting on the hotshot crew there, going down to lower 48. For me, well, I grew up in Alaska, uh, so this is home. Going down to Lower Freddie on a fire assignment there, it getting dark and it's not cold was new to me. <laughs> so it, it is a uh, little bit of a change there for sure. New exposures for sure. Like I fought fire throughout almost all of the western U.S., made it over to Tennessee on a fire assignment there. The Hotshot crews are one of our stronger uh, things that we have, you know, the folks that we have that were on the crews there. We have members sitting on MAC right now. So it's uh, pretty cool to see the career growth that some of these folks that have started off here. So, And yourself moving up to the position you're at. Yeah. And it's, you know, AFS is an organization there. It, it's different in that we have to support the firefighters that we have, whether it's going to be the ones here that we're mobilizing up to fires here in Alaska, or we're importing folks from the lower 40 to come on up and help us out. So 
we're different in that we have a dining facility, a warehouse. Zones have their uh, logistics aircraft and helicopters. So we can, you know, if we start picking up fires or whatever, we can basically be self-supportive in that regard. It's in the state of Alaska. Uh, we also work pretty closely with our state of Alaska partners there. They have quite a uh, robust fire program as well. So their air tankers, their uh, technicians, and their engine program is pretty strong. So I think uh, you know, they made leaps and bounds uh, trying to get that uh, where it's at right now. And then it is considered, I guess, a fire specialist program. So I can speak to that a little bit more. Uh, so that one is kind of the port the aviation piece. So helicopter managers doing detection. Currently, we have a fire specialist who's doing detection for the zones right now. Then as they gain training and experience, they move up into the incident management teams, working as section chiefs or anything like that one. And that's worked out quite well and, uh, you know, getting the folks that they can move up and qualify for fire management officer jobs or unit aviation management jobs uh, within the fire program within Alaska or down low 48. Fire medics, so that one is, uh, we're taking that one on because Alaska is remote. We have to be able to provide some kind of medical support for the folks on the initial, if we did have an injury on some of our remote fires there, having some kind of care initially to take care of the firefighters until we can get their life med or somebody else in there to medevac those folks out. So that's a bit of a thing there. And the smoke jumpers, uh, they also have a really strong medical presence there as well. All their stuff is run by a couple of pretty motivated, motivated folks there, paramedic and uh, higher trained medical staff there within it. So all of their training they do is standardized. And so they can actually drop a load of medics onto uh, an incident uh, for you know, if there's an airplane crash that nobody can get to, you can uh, drop a load of smoke jumpers that are medically trained to get them situated so you can get a helicopter into there. So it's quite different. Uh, you won't see that in Lower 30 so much where they can roll an ambulance up. <laughs> right, yeah. There's not a lot of roads here, I've noticed. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. um, and I, I was lucky enough to go out in a de detection flight with Tasha Shields, who we talked to as well in the last episode. And um, she's... Uh, Fuel specialist, but you did fire specialist. Yeah. So that was pretty exciting. And and yeah, you're you're flying and you're in vast, yeah. <laughs> vast land of, of nothing but land and water. Yeah. <laughs> and tundra <laughs> and trees. And and then that's another thing is the fuel types are a little different up here and what you're dealing with with the tundra and with the boreal um, forests. Yeah. Forest, forest, forest yeah. too. So it is interesting, you know, like we'll have, you know, an area where we'll get rained on, uh, give it one or two days of hot and dry, and we're right back into it. So they take off again. So I think Canada, they're seeing that with some of their stuff that they have going on currently is uh, their similar fuel model as well. So they're they're seeing it where they got quite a bit of rain in the southern part of Alberta, but the high pressure is set up back in, they're right back into it. So. Right. So even though we're off to a slow start for Alaska this year, this time last year, burning pretty heavily, but it, it could change at yep. any moment, just depending on those weather systems, right? Yep, correct. And the fuel models uh, that we have, uh, they're receptive. You know, we're getting quite a bit of lightning, but anticipate that to moderate the next couple of days there. But uh, we always have to have some kind of capability here. So. Yeah, and I noticed what was interesting, like in the briefings, I've been sitting in on some morning briefings and if I go through each zone and then also with the Alaska or the state of Alaska, uh, with them involved too, and, and just going through about each zone, what they have and preparedness level for each zone, which is kind of uh, 
different than I've seen in lower 40. Yes. You know, so each zone speaks to the field conditions that they have in their zone, staffing, and that's where we can identify any kind of aviation because aviation's pretty heavy up here. So supporting fires or the zones, like, you know, we have the two remote stations here, the Turnkey in Fort Yukon and the station out in Galena. So supporting those guys is going to be a bit of a challenge here for sure, especially with, you know, you start getting fire season and it decides to show up there as the smoke you know, when it's the aviation capability. Right. So, Brett, you rely a lot on the, the looking at the weather and, and, and the prepositioning of resources to, yes. to be able to get to those fires if they do occur. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You know, we'll have times where we get smoked out here in Fairbanks and we'll move smoke jumpers or the fire bosses or anything like that out, out of the smoke. So we might move them up north or out west or even up to Fort Yukon to uh, stage them up there so that we still have them as viable assets. So what is it like working for Alaska Fire Service? I love it. I guess that's the best way I can put it. Uh, the mission is pretty solid. It comes from the department manual, uh, 620. That basically says, well, and fire suppression for the Department of Interior is going to be handled by the BLM Alaska Fire Service. So it's pretty clear mission, you know, getting the folks that we have, like starting off on the North Stars. Uh, our training program is pretty robust in the springtime. So you'll see quite a bit of training courses that are being put on here. So there's always going to be growth happening in that regard. And then finding the opportunities for those folks to get the training experience they need to you know, get those qualifications there and move on up. So that is kind of the only thing that is like that, I think, in the lower 48. They don't, I don't see that so much. We do see, you know, folks that have been here, you know, like I said, since 1990. And, uh, you know, folks that will take jobs in lower 48 and they wind up back up here. Uh, mainly because of the culture, I mean, because of the people. You know, we have a single mission. Uh, we do some ancillary stuff. For example, we had uh, our aviation folks helped out with the uh, typhoon out on Western Alaska this last fall. So we had to charter some aircraft uh, for a FEMA mission, that uh, mission assignment. So that was uh, a different take on a, what we normally do. But yeah, so it it can be. And across the board, I uh, sent some folks, it's been a number of years, but we've had some folks respond to hurricanes, you know, the oil spill down in the Gulf, uh, just all across the board. So, yeah. So how do you like working in Alaska overall then? Since you were born yep. and raised here? Yep, yep. So I, for me, it was challenging for sure. You know, I was just joking with uh, some of our folks that we have down the street there in fire operations areas. These basically have deal with mosquitoes, wet feet, and getting rained on on fire and still being on that fire so <laughs> yeah. uh, because you know the rain won't necessarily put the fires out uh, as we mentioned before the fuel tank that we have it'll burn down deep and it'll hold the heat and then as soon as it dries out it's right back into it so quite a bit of mop up there uh, compared to what i've seen in lower 48 there uh, for example going down to nevada chasing some of those fires around uh, or get around it or the wind stops off the next one. So, okay. yeah, and there is very little mop up in that regard. So, yeah, it's a different different take on things. And then remote fire camps, we don't have caterers in like that one. We'll get fresh food boxes out. So we'll have those, you know, first three days will be on Emory's meals ready to eat and then switch over to the fresh food boxes there and basically get back in the fire camp at the end of your shift and uh, prepare your food and all that. So, and then you, Along with that, you know, worry about bears. Uh, oh, right. So, so there's that. That's another little hazard you might have to keep an eye on as well. So, <laughs> just a little hazard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just those little bears. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, 
Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a challenging place to work. That's pretty darn fun. Uh, you know, as our season winds down, I think the discussion is going to happen later this week, or early part of next week for our conversion date. Uh, so that's where we convert all the modified protection levels into limited. And so that affects about 60 million acres, I believe. Uh, and that will mean less of a response. However, we still have to maintain some kind of capability because there are points within that that we have to, if we do get fires into that area, we'll have to do some point protection in that area. So now that's pretty good use. Smoke jumpers and helicopters and also there to support those. Yeah, can you explain that a little bit to how um, you do change the, I guess, the response, right, yep. from limited, modified, and... Yep, so we'll have uh, limited, modified, full, and critical. And so uh, full and critical is going to be around our infrastructure. So like villages or towns or infrastructure, you know, where we have power lines or anything like that one, though, that's going to be in the full or critical. And so, so yeah. like instant response if you get a fire in those areas. Yep, and the modified... We'll take a look at it, see what it's doing, where we're at in the fire season. If it's early in the spring and it's continuous fuels, we'll probably try to get onto it, get it wrapped up so it's off the books. And those are more remote yeah. areas. Yeah. And then uh, the limited is going to be a monitor by air. You know, we'll just map it using remote sensing or uh, having to do no detection routes like we were talking about earlier. So, so the fire management plan, actually, it was done in the 80s, I believe, mid-80s, and the uh, it does spell it out uh, because of our ecosystem that we have up here being fire dependent. It will help out. So fire on the landscape is not a bad thing up here. Uh, so we're able to continue the natural push of things and then uh, take action where it needs to be suppressed around any kind of improvements or anything like that one, any kind of spot point protection. We do have, I think, uh, was it 77 smoke jumpers? Something to that effect here. So uh, pretty robust smoke jumper program there and the paracargo program they have within that along with the fire medics there the paracargo program is uh for a number of years there they would be either in the top five for number of paracargo pounds that they've dropped to support the firefighters on the different uh, missions that they're dealing with yeah and we'll be talking to a member of the smoke jumpers and used to run the paracargo or manage the maybe not <laughs> And we will be talking to a member of the Smoke Jumpers who also work in the program. Talk a little bit more about that because it is an interesting program. And it seems like, I mean, we went over to check it out and they, they drop boats, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and equipment that you can't get into places without having like this air, air support, basically. So we rely heavily on that suppression efforts and here in Alaska. Yeah, so we'll have, that'll be at times that can be the only lifeline that those folks will have is the paracargo program there. So getting the food, water, equipment, and supplies they're going to need to keep doing their work on that fire will most likely be coming from the paracargo program. So. so what is your favorite memory or experience working for Alaska Fire Service? Oh my goodness, I have so many. I'll start off with on the North Stars. Very first assignment, you know, it was... Uh, over by Hughes, Alaska in 1990. And uh, we were doing hotline, basically putting a fire out, building a saw line, putting in hose behind it and all that stuff there. And uh, wind came along and threatened our camp. And uh, I had to pack up my tent, jam it all in my red bag and get into the black. And that's what hooked me. Uh, <laughs> that, that's totally what got me into this whole deal. So 
bit of an adrenaline rush and then uh you know working on a hotshot cruise there seeing a hotshot crew everybody's kind of meeting each other or they might be experienced pretty tight crew but going from a bunch of strangers on the street to pretty high performing crew uh, that is something that i also like to see whether it's going to be we're a hotshot crew or even a you know like an office uh, dispatch office so it's similar situation uh, where a lot of folks come in share their experiences they had over the winter where it's going to be traveling around or anything like that one and then coming in and uh, you can definitely see the crew cohesion that happens there's going to be on the crews or in the offices that we have around here at AFS a lot of folks uh, return year after year for that reason I think it's everybody know, kind of knows their mission and uh, as we ramp up there it's pretty darn fun to see so yeah, that's what I like to see so I had mentioned there on the North Stars there, but the strength on the crews there is going to be the chainsaws. Uh, so as much as they can put in fire line there, try to keep the chainsaws up and running. So we will have the chainsaws going in, clearing out the fire edge there or doing a, a fire line itself. And then we'll be stringing hose behind it because we do not dig hand line. Uh, that's not something that we do. So the fires come along, they'll hit the saw line, they'll drop down to the ground, and then we'll have the hose there to extinguish the fire. So that's typically how it gets controlled. Just because that death layer yeah. is so thick? it could be so thick, yeah. yeah. I could see that to be attractive for people, and <laughs> yeah. not not having a dig line and using yeah. a chainsaw. That's, yeah. a, that's, pretty, that's pretty cool. <laughs> On the converse side of that is going to be the mop-up. So, you know, as you get the control lines put in or whatever, uh, then it'll be the mop-up. So you'll... You know, typically we'll mop in 300 feet fire edge just to, because we've had fires that, you know, if you go 100 feet in, it'll drop down a layer in a duff and move out and off to the races again. So, seeing that time or two as the summer's, you know, hotter and drier summer's there, it, it can be a thing. Well, thanks, Ray. Yeah, you bet. Thanks Thank you. Today and joining me here on our podcast. And we'll get ready for our next person to visit with. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yes. So my next guest on this special episode brought to you from Alaska for Alaska Fire Service is Andrew Gavin or AJ. Go by AJ, right? Yes, ma'am. A smoke jumper up here in Alaska. And also you've done some work with Paracargo, I understand. Yeah, that's part of the uh, Alaska Smoke Jumper program up here, working with Paracargo. Yeah, it's uh, kind of big. It sounds like a big part of the program, actually. Yeah, <laughs> helps support the state logistically. Yeah, so uh, welcome. And first off, let's get started with how you got started in fire. I got started in fire back in 2008. Uh, my sister was dating a guy, <laughs> and he was in fire. So he asked if I wanted a job coming out of high school. I was going to go to school for athletics, not academics at the time. And then that kind of translated into me really enjoying the wildland scene and kind of broadening my horizons on not just doing one thing, but I can do multiple things coming out of college. So finished up there and then hotshotted for a couple of years. And then I, I found out what jumping was. So I wanted to do that. What Got attracted that. you to jumping? They do everything. You can do everything as a jumper i think my first fire i was working as a water tender the first fire i saw smoke jumpers and they came up they told me exactly what to do how to do it and all of a sudden then they're running the fire 
like they hit the ground and then they're just giving their they had great situational awareness and I just kind of noticed that that was pretty huge just to be that fast at putting a plan together and then being that effective. So I knew that's what I wanted to do. Excellent. So what's it like working for AFS up here? It's awesome. A really good community up here. Uh, everything's pretty tight knit and everybody knows each other. Yeah. AFS is cool. I mean, yeah, it's a really nice community. So what exactly do you do as a smoke jumper? Um, as a smoke jumper, we are a state and national resource. Since there are not many roads in the state of Alaska, we are the primary initial attack resource and sometimes can be relied on as an extended attack. And building that ICS system for uh, incoming teams or just to stay there in place. Um, a lot of what we do is help, like you asked earlier, for paracargo, we've helped support the state logistically with uh, the jump ships being able to kick pallet-sized cargo out of the back of the ship. And now with the Dash 8, being able to extend our reach to the coast in a shorter amount of time and really just get all of what we need out there. I mean, still in the infancy stage of trying to figure out how and what we can do because... I mean, rural Alaska is pretty limited on resources. Like, biggest thing is fuel and clean water. But once we are able to like get around that, like water filters out and into the fires and stuff like that, then all we got to really worry about is food and then fuel and then other supplies like that. So yeah, like logistics is huge up here as you can hear. But yeah, I mean, other than that, we also provide uh, ourselves. We hatch our own parachutes. We rig all of our parachutes, manufacture our own gear. We do everything we can and then some when it comes to training. Everybody gets, I think, uh, 10 years, and then they're on the glide path of being an IC3 in division by the end of those 10 years. Yeah, does that answer the question? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, well, so you have different different things that you do in, um, in paracargo is one. And I want to talk about a little okay. bit more about that because that is pretty new, unique. I mean, smoke jumpers in the lower 48, they get paracargo, but it's their like 48 hour boxes or whatever right. else they need, so not supply, boats yeah. and things like that. So. We supply a fire for days on end, like three days. is usually the outlook up here. Like if you're get if you hit the ground and you see the fires going over the hill are going to be longer than three days. First thing you're doing is ordering, paracargo or however it needs to be supported usually by helicopter but paracargo is usually put their hands on and that's just about 20 28 guys that it's a volunteer job at the jump shack and then like they kind of get voted in and from there like you just build all the pallets and put all the boxes and kind of like play tetris with them <laughs> but we can then load the casas to be about 3,500 pounds the cost so, of aircraft. Yeah, cost of an aircraft, cost of 212. And from there, we can load outboard motors with Zodiac boats and then kick those as one pallet. So that's just one pass going out of the back of the airplane. And then we can then put also 36 or 24 QBs and then 36 MREs also on there. So we can get you a boat and get your food and water so you can have all the things you need to support that fire. Plus, all the hose and pumps that you would need as well. But again, the state's pretty big. We only have two CASAs currently. I think last year when 2022, we had, I think, 
three in rotation. So three in rotation, that's nine kickers, three to each ship. And so that's all day flying, coming back, wrapping and strapping, putting all the cargo back on the on the jump ship with the forklift and just trying to make sure that all the paperwork is documented appropriately. Yeah, knowing where all this accountable property is going. That's what everybody needs to know that. Right. Yeah. And and how do you pick that up then when you get the cargo out? How do you pick it up? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a lot. So, yeah, you got order your nets. Sometimes that comes out with paracargo. And then you're able to, like, break everything down when the fire's out, load it into the sling nets, and then the helicopter will then fly to the closest airstrip that a, a caravan or a CASA can come pick it up and backhaul it. So that kind of just goes into the logistics of what we do. Like we put it out in the woods and we bring it back. So some stats for PC. Uh, we had 130 paracargo missions. Between that, we kicked also our IA bundles and our paracargo drops. But we delivered just about 450,000 pounds in 2022. That's a lot of cargo. That's a lot. <laughs> And that's not that's just one of our banner years. I think in twenty nineteen we kicked more, and I don't have those numbers. So what are the? I'm interested in the boat, like the the boats. They're just wrapped, like the yeah, the boat inflatable. Program. Yeah, so they are uh, hand pumped. They're not like dropping out of the back of the airplane, like you see in Navy SEAL movies and everything, <laughs> where they like CO two blow up, all that kind of thing. But yeah, they're hand pumped. So like typically, you want to have a big gravel bar so you don't have to drag all the stuff because it is heavy and we don't have machines out there to move all this stuff. So when you're able to roll it over to the bank, you open it up. The Zodiacs are pretty durable, but again, like you're blowing them up with uh, air pump. So once you get them all inflated, then a couple other, the jumpers are then getting the outboard out of the box in the box. It has all the protective padding in there. So the outboard's not smashed and then not usable. And then it also has PFDs, life vests, paddles, all that stuff that will be needed to make the boat operational. Extra fuel, water, and just a little toolbox as well. And so once that's made up, then yeah, you can go as far as the river will allow you. But if we are on a roadside fire, we do have a Wooldridge and an aluminum craft that uh, can be really handy, especially like on fires last year that were down in Manly. And also in 2019, down on the uh, uh, McKinley Fire, those were super handy. And yeah, you can carry more, obviously, in those bigger boats. So that definitely is an advantage. And so, every, boat program is also, it's all operated internal. So we certify and have certifiers that are within the Alaska Smoke Trapper program. So you actually operate the boats oh yeah we everybody or like if you want to be part of the boat program you have to we have a whole task book for it and yeah we'll get you boat missions and when they come down the list or if you're out in the woods and you need a boat then that's your opportunity and they're utilized mainly for what then i, I know there's a lot of water in alaska <laughs> yeah, a lot but, of rivers well, so like a lot of times and no, no roads so obviously yeah. boats sound like a good way boats to go boats are huge i mean like a lot of times you jump a fire, like say you jump a fire in lower 48, you're on the road. Someone's somewhere. Yeah, yeah somewhere. Someone's somewhere. probably going to be around with a vehicle at some point later in your future to pick you up or you can commandeer to kind of move around the fire so you're not having to walk everywhere. We don't have that luxury of having roads up here. 
we have rivers and bigger rivers, <laughs> we have little rivers and big rivers. And so like those boats are our means of transport later on. We can kick four wheelers, but until we can get a justification on that, then we're not able to ride around on them. But the boat is basically our best means of riding or, or uh, of doing any sort of structure protection or allotment protection on bigger fires because our bread and butter up here is structure protection and allotment protection. And those things can be pretty big and the fire can be threatening multiple allotments or structures. And I'm assuming they're usually around rivers. They're usually <laughs> on the waterfront property. Yes. It's really nice living on the water. Yeah. Five fish camps in the, in the, the state. And the native fish camps. Yeah. Native fish camps. So what's it like working for Alaska Fire Service then? Have you worked anywhere else? Yeah, I've worked uh, for Zion National Park and Logan Hotshots, but working for Alaska Fire Service, I've been here the longer. Uh, I've worked here for eight years. And yeah, I, I love working up here. Like, community is real tight, like we were talking about earlier. But yeah, the dynamic of being able to be part of a boat program, be able to uh, jump and go do other things like go see other parts of the state. It's really, really amazing and really fun just because like, yeah, this is the last frontier and a lot of it isn't seen in the lower 48. And not a lot of people get to have this opportunity to come. Yeah. Fight fire in Alaska. So what are you, are you you've gone to the lower 48 to fight fire as well. Mm -hmm. too. What are the main differences that you see? Main differences I see are they have access to more resource, whether that be, personnel, equipment, or aviation, whereas we have a better grip on doing more with less, which makes everything a lot more simple. So you don't have to have a lot of the uh, niceties, I guess, <laughs> if, you, if you will. Like we don't have big fire camps typically up here. And when you come back, it's a lot of radio briefings uh, for these bigger fires. But at the same time, you do have to think about like your living situation. It does make you have to think about, all right, how, how much water are we going to have to order? How much food are we going to have to order? All the other little things like fiber tape, flagging, everything when it comes down to it, uh, fuel. Like you have to worry about taking care of the operation that you're a part of. And sometimes in the lower 48, those already, you have your warehouse or your cash there. So what we have to drive supplies exactly. Whereas that's where paracargo comes in. It's awesome because then, like, if you order it up, you have your need for it, and it be there probably the next day. Do you ever have to take into consideration that you might not be able to fly? I mean, somebody might not fly. Yeah, I mean, we've I've been weathered in for almost a week, and way out west, just like marine layer comes in too smoky. And that's why you want to build up and have enough food rations to last you. You don't want to just have all the fresh food, you know, because that's usually going to go first and then usually spoils quicker. But if you are going to be out in the woods, you always want to prepare to be picked up within the next three days because you never know when you're going to have your next window. So we have a lot of stuff. (laughs) Right. So what's your favorite memory or experience working for Alaska Fire Service? I would say in 2015, <laughs> the uh, 
fire in Nolato, what a lot of us call the miracle of Nolato. There was only six jumpers that were on the fire for the first uh, two shifts, and then we got reinforced later. But with six jumpers, three of them being first-year jumpers like myself and two of my rookie bros, we did what we could to manage a pretty big fire with just a couple of uh, natives that were driving dozers. Tried to wrangle it, worked all night till about three, and then the fire spotted across the road and we had to regroup. In the same breath, it seemed that we had another fire roaring over the hill, burning to our fire. So we had the chips stacked against us. And so it was just really memorable to not lose any structures, no loss of life, and still be able to walk away and, yeah, just have see all these people super happy to that not have their village burned down. I mean, it was touch and go. We got reinforced by the Midnight Sun Hotchack crew, and they really took a lot of weight off of us. I mean, we were going on 48 hours, no sleep, running out of food, water, batteries to talk on the radio. There is no clean water out in the village, so we're, we're, we're struggling. But at the end of it, I mean, it was totally worth it. And then that was one of my favorite memories just because of the fire behavior, the people I've met out there, and just the folks that were on the ground with us. We really built a pretty serious bond and talk about it quite a bit. So there's rarely a time where I'm talking about fire and fire of Nolato in 2015 doesn't come up. Well, that sounds sounds like a memorable experience. Yeah, I wanted to. You wanted to keep fighting fire after that. <laughs> yeah, no, that was yeah. I was already we were pretty deep into it. I mean, we were already been at the Sockeye Fire, which was down in Willow Creek, down south of the range, and that one was really hard because there was a lot of structure being lost, and then uh, got picked up and went straight to this one. So it was like my introduction, my first year in Alaska was pretty intense because. <laughs> I had no idea that this were there were this many people in the state. <laughs> and then I'm having to interact with all sorts of different cultures and people. Because I remember, yeah, having to really just relay information to some of these natives about like, hey, like we're losing this thing. Can we maybe like you get some help? And they're they were just kind of walking me through the village, giving me a tour. I'm like trying to give them some urgency. Like, <laughs> what can we do? And then coming across a, a dust abatement truck, a water truck, and then commandeering it, getting it to run, and then asking one of the missionaries to drive it for me. Because <laughs> there wasn't enough of us to operate it. So, yeah, then threw a Shindawa pump on the top, hauled it a mobile attack engine, and made it work. That's awesome. Yeah, for that, well, Tasha, uh, Tasha was also talking about, you know, you just have to do less with or more with, more with less, yeah. And um, you mentioned it too, and yeah, just making it work up here. Yeah, yeah, make it work somehow. Like it's pretty fun when you when you get into the weeds of it. Yeah, you become a real woodsman technician. <laughs> <laughs> Very good problem solver. Nothing's ever never. If that makes sense, nothing's ever never. Field rigging something is always what and tends to happen a lot of times. Which is fine. <laughs> as long as it works. <laughs> Until it doesn't. <laughs> then you have to Yeah, then you have to do figure some problem it out. solving. <laughs> yeah. I mean there's like 
yeah, you have a pump go down or yeah, your spotter forgets to kick you a firebox with all your food and tools <laughs> and sleeping bags and we just got to figure it out. <laughs> we jumped a fire back in 2018 and our spotter was his first year and he forgot to kick us a fire pack, which has our food, water, <laughs> sleeping bags and our tools. And so there's eight of us and only six of us have tools and food and water for three days. And so got on the sat phone and I was running that fire, called up and said, Hey, they forgot to kick us this. So as we're working, we had to make, we had to figure it out. Like we just grabbed burlap bags and just took a grip, just grabbed Tundra, threw them into like a corner at the bottom of the burlap bag, tied a knot. And then that was our beater. That's how we <laughs> fought fire. Cause it's already wet and all you're doing is just beating into further wet stuff. <laughs> What does it mean? Tundra is just like a sponge. If it's dry on top, it's water's down there somewhere. So we just started on the Tundra beat for <laughs> left sacks. <laughs> and then about two hours later, yeah, about two hours later, the jump ship comes back and then kicks our firebox at the heel of the fire, which is already now two, three miles away. <laughs> so useless till the next day. Yeah. But we ended up catching it that night. You know, so that was that was huge. Luckily, we did have fire bosses for half of that shift, but yeah, we had we had a good, hardworking load, and that's what I also really like about them here as a smoke jumper. They last smoke jumpers, they really they're not scared to pour sweat for their next guy. Yeah, and fire and fire bosses are single engine air tankers, basically. Yeah, they're uh, seaplanes. Yeah, floats on them. Yeah, and deliver. That's usually the, water, right up here. Yeah, we yeah. don't do too much with hard just because all the yeah <laughs> all the water i mean i think this year alone we were down near birch lake responding to a fire i was first jumper in the door again and they called the fire bosses and we were held outside the fire area flying around for about 30 minutes just watching the fire bosses work and i think their turnaround time was a quarter mile so these things can really move they're super zippy in the air and they're really efficient i think they have three of them and they put that fire out we didn't (laughs) we didn't jump (laughs) we wanted to really bad but they put that fire out because their turnaround and their effectiveness was just yeah it was dominating they just went off the top rope and gave it people's elbow it was awesome (laughs) (laughs) well see that's what's different too because you know usually you hear oh no yeah Aircraft is for support. It's the people on the ground that, that actually put the fire out. Oh, man, no. But <laughs> sometimes if you get it on it really quick, though, yeah. then they can douse it. Yeah, I mean, like, there, it also has been, like, where the fire bosses have maybe a 20-minute turnaround. Where, like, obviously this one was, like, seconds. You know, like, not even a minute. So you, you mentioned, like, making a makeshift beater, but you actually have a tool that is it called a beater yeah which is what most people down in the lower 48 would call a flapper but we have them as beater we call them beaters and we manufacture those here in house and i think like we should have patented it because everybody else is making them up here too but um the first one was made up yeah it was made by tony pastro i believe i think that's why they call it a tony tool but back in the day they used to just take a the top of a black spruce and just kind of limit up and just use the branches on, on the top of it. So it was nice weight and balance. And then that's how they would beat fires out. Or they would take burlap, 
throw tundra in it and then beat around it if there's no trees around. But then we got wise, took some PVC, some flexi, uh, some like half inch flexi neck, and then a bunch of rubber flaps on the <laughs> that are stapled and fixed in on the top. And this thing that the beater really works well up here. He's super effective in the tundra, but also if it's like pretty sparse trees, it's not thick canopy, then they're super effective in there too. I mean, you're not digging up here. It's going to be a pump and hose show. But with how wet the fuels can't, or yeah, depending on what the indices are, yeah, the beater is going to be your best option typically. And right right before that, it's going to probably be pump and hose because water just puts it all out anyway. You just help the water. Help the water. <laughs> is there anything else you want to talk about? So yeah, going from the big city coming here is always a it's always a hard change, especially the warm weather. But um, I do enjoy just like the adventure and the getaway. It does make it worth the while and just the experience. Like the skills I get up here, I mean, everybody I work with just seem like they seem like they could be trades most places, but they're all just very handy people and very capable people, which is really nice to have. Thank you, AJ, <laughs> for insight on Alaska smoke jumpers. You betcha. So next up for our series in Alaska Fire Service coming to you from Alaska, we have Ryan McPherson. Ryan is a, technically an aviation management specialist. Welcome, Ryan. Hello. How are you today, Carrie? <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, that's what they say, aviation management specialist, but in firefighter terms, I'm an air attack. Most people out there by this time in their career know what an air attack is. Uh, roughly, I mean, I guess my day-to-day -day job is be ready for initial attack, coordinate airspace over wildland fires in the FTA, which is the fire traffic area. So at any point in time, we can have multiple aircraft flying, so somebody needs to keep us safe and they rely on me to do that, which is kind of funny, but uh, <laughs> I enjoy doing it. You say it's kind of funny. How's that? Well, you know, I just, I've been doing this long enough now that I never thought I'd be in this point in my career, I guess, 20 something years later. And I remember the first fire I was on with an air attack and, you know, he was talking to the ground guys and I was just like, man, how do I get that job? You know, just <laughs> up there cruising around in the plane. We're down here sweating our butts off, chasing <laughs> fire. And, that guy's up there just having a good old time, but it's not always a good old time and get very complex and complicated between, you know, talking and managing up to six radios sometimes, talking to guys on the ground, talking to the multiple aircraft, checking in and checking out whether it's tankers or scoopers or helicopters, and, you know, coordinating their space, let alone drawing a picture for the guys on the ground on what I'm seeing and what they should be concerned with. Ultimately, we do work for the ground guys, so, you know try and coordinate that with them and assist them as much as possible. We'll go into that a little bit more, but how did, did you get started? Where did you initially start? Initially, I started down in Region 3 on the Tonto National Forest. Uh, it was interesting. I had some friends down there that were all like structure firefighter guys, and they were like trying to push me to go do structure stuff. And I really wasn't into the amount of medical and car accidents and stuff that they respond to. Blood and guts isn't really my thing. And then another good friend of mine who happens to work here at AFS, we grew up together. Uh, he's like, well, what about wildland fire, man? He's like, you love being in the woods. You know, he's like, you love traveling. 
So I was like, you know, I'll think about it. So I kicked it around for a little while, and there was a S one thirty one ninety class that came up at the junior college, and I was like, well, I'll go take it. You know, it was, and those are kind of introductory classes for fire. yeah, basic basically, wildland, yeah, wildland fire. What you need to go out on the fire line, essentially. And I was like, well, I'll give it a whirl. You know, I think at the time I was like, maybe I don't know, a hundred dollars or something. You know, to take this class at the community college and. Went there, went through all that. I was like, all right, this might not be bad. And I was, so I started applying for some jobs that winter, just locally in Arizona, and uh, ended up getting offered a position on a Type 6 engine, and it's all downhill from there. And then I uh, had some great mentors while I was there, and they basically were like, you know, take any opportunity you can get to travel or, you know, fire assignments anywhere in the country or, you know, working on different crews or whatever, you know, the more flexible you are, the more opportunity you'll have to advance in your career. So with the support of friends and families and helping me do that and bounce around, I got a lot of opportunity, you know, from fighting fire in Florida all the way to Alaska, you know, across the Southeast, the Southwest, you name it, there's not many places in the U.S. I haven't been on some sort of fire assignment. So uh, that made it appealing to me and then it was like well you know my god do this as a career and here i am today excellent yes and we're happy to have you here today well thanks for having <laughs> me as an air attack basically which is your main job up here yeah how how does that compare working that job here as opposed to working lower for well, I get the benefit of doing both because my plan that's on contract is a split contract. So it's oh, stationed up here in Alaska for roughly 45 days or so. And then it moves down to Billings, Montana, stationed out of Billings, Montana. So I kind of do get the best of both worlds. I'm not stuck in one place all summer long. And uh, when I get down to Montana, it's definitely a lot different than Alaska. The challenges in Alaska are fuel. That's a big one limited resources getting fuel for the aircraft yes yeah. so it's uh you know typically lower 48 there's some sort of airport within 45 minutes to an hour of wherever you're flying at up here sometimes i you know may launch out of fairbanks here and i may have a two-hour flight just to get to the fire and then from there i gotta you know do flight planning on you know having a primary source for fuel and alternate uh sources for fuel if weather's bad or something happens and I need to divert or whatever else, whatnot. So that can be a little challenging at times for sure. Just determining where you're going to get fuel. Are they open? Do I got to pump it ourselves? Whatever it may be, you know, it's just not like pulling up to a gas station. Some guy rolls out, fills up the airplane for you <laughs> or maybe out of barrels in some places or a remote outstation like Galena or Fort Yukon where, you know, you fill your own airplanes. I don't do it pilots too, but yeah, so that's a big challenge. And then, you know, you tend to get spoiled in the lower 48 with lodging. You know, you got Hiltons and Marriott's and stuff. It's like you end up in wherever, Bethel, Alaska, or Kotzebue, or somewhere, Galena, you know, for instance. Uh, there's no Hilton or Marriott to stay at, <laughs> so you got to be a little flexible there on uh, the quality of lodging you're staying in. Uh, sometimes you may have to, you know, pitch a tent and throw a sleeping bag out on a ramp somewhere, you know, a village somewhere if you have a mechanical or something. You can't or you time out for the day or you know, can't get back to home base essentially. So lower 48. Yeah. You, uh, logistics are definitely a little easier when it comes to the refueling aircraft or lodging, rental cars, that type of stuff. So 
that and it's just a vast state in general i mean the size of it it's like i can get a call from here to go down to a fire on the kenai peninsula down towards bethel wherever Uktiavik, up on the north slope the border of canada so response times are definitely a lot longer uh you really got to plan for relief if you know you're going to be flying over a fire for a while you're going to need some sort of relief where that relief's coming from maybe two hours out so pretty much you get on scene and you're ordering relief because they're going to need to be there before you run out of fuel or you need to go get fuel. So that can be a challenge too. And just a lot of landscape and, you know, limited number resources until things get going really busy. Then we have a lot of support from the lower 48, which makes our life a lot easier as well. Up here, uh, we do a lot more, I'd say lower 48, you know, I'm lucky that maybe on a busy summer, I might have maybe two or three, maybe five loads of smoke jumpers at the most kicked on fires throughout the summer. Up here, you can pretty much guarantee any fire you're flying to, there's probably going to be some sort of smoke jumper operations going on. So we have a real tight relationship with those guys. And, uh, you know, they're our primary initial attack resource. So you can almost guarantee any fire you're flying to, there's either going to be jumpers in route or they're already there, or, you know, they're going to be doing some sort of paracargo or something. So working with the uh, smoke jumper aircraft pretty consistently. Now the types of tactical aircraft, uh, our primary tactical aircraft or water scooping aircraft, you know, the fire bosses, CL-415s. Now we do have a couple, the state has a couple retardant tankers on contract and those, uh, you know, basically life and property at risk. You know, we, we've got the green light on the retardant. A lot of the federal lands are Fish and Wildlife Service, Park Service, BLM lands. So, uh, a lot of restrictions, you know, for retardant use on those lands, but anything urban interface, you know, chances are we use retardant, but our primary source is uh, water scooping aircraft to assist ground personnel on fires, essentially. So you're working a lot with the, those aircraft, um, helicopters too, as yep. well? Helicopters, uh, we use helicopters for all kinds of stuff up here, a lot of logistics, bucket work, whatever it may be, shuttling crews around, bumping jumpers around equipment. And uh, same thing, you know, the, the helicopters don't have the legs we have, you know, fuel capacity wise. So uh, a lot of planning there with the helicopters on, you know, where they need to get fuel or this fuel going to have to be brought in for them type thing. So there's uh, logistics is everything up here. Uh, it's our driving force on successfully fighting fire if we don't have logistics in place you're not going to be successful. It's always the biggest challenge. So how is it determined what fires you you may be working on? Is it complexity or? Uh, basically, a lot of times, you know, it's just kind of the standard roll out of here. Uh, whoever, if it was a detection airplane that found the fire and it's, you know, cabins are at risk or whatever, maybe it's going to be launch jumpers, air attack, fire bosses is typically kind of our run for an initial attack. Uh, than that, uh, we have our protection levels. I don't talked about that at all, but, uh, you know, that. limited, modified, full, critical. So uh, limited fires, chances are we're not going to go fly limited fires unless there's some sort of value at risk. But if it's, uh, you know, modified, full, especially critical, you know, they're going to be launching us right away. Sometimes, uh, you know, they'll launch the jumpers first, let those guys do the size up, determine whether or not they're going to be able to catch it without any aerial resources assisting them and we'll go from there. 
But yeah, that's another beauty of working in Alaska. It's, you know, lower 48, 99% of the fires they want suppressed. Uh, Alaska, since it's so vast and there's a lot of open space out there, open land that, uh, you know, limited fires, a lot of times we just let them burn and uh, monitor them, let Mother Nature do her thing, you know, the way it was intended to be. Because it seems like there's a lot of lightning fires up here. Yeah. <laughs> when we get a lightning bus, it's it's pretty significant. Yeah. On busy years, yeah, we've had, you know, 15,000 lightning strike days. If the conditions are right, it can uh, cause a lot of chaos, essentially. Just a lot of fires to report, a lot of detection going on. I used to do that prior to doing air attack. I worked out in the Galena zone as a fire specialist. So that kind of uh, jack of all trades, master of none do a little of this, little of that. I flew a lot of detection. That's kind of what got me into the aviation side of things. Uh, I'd spend hundreds of hours, probably a, a summer, flying detection in a busy summer, doing fire updates, finding new fires, determining what action to take on them, so on and so forth. And that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. And just realized that I really enjoyed flying a lot and being in airplanes. And that's kind of what led me into the, the air attack thing. Went through the National Academy and then was a trainee and then ended up getting the position here. Now this year I'm working on, it's technically AITS training, air tactical supervisor, basically flying uh, air attack from the right seat of a lead plane. So just low level, but still bounce up and down. Basically yeah. killing two birds with one stone in the, the lead plane profile. as in ASN module, aerial supervision module. That's just you're just air attacking from a lead plane, and there's a lot more crew resource management going on in between you and the pilot. A lot of verbal and nonverbal communication because you're still talking to the ground guys. They're talking to the tankers, you know, making sure everyone's safe and we can do a good, effective job for the guys on the ground. Let's go back to uh, the fire detection for a minute because when Tasha was on, I'm not sure we really got into the specifics of what that was the job that you do when you're actually flying those flights? Yeah, so basically due to the vast landscape, there's a lot of areas out there that, you know, commercial air traffic, or obviously we don't have very many roads. We don't have fire lookouts like in lower 48. A lot of the lands are fairly flat where our primary problem child is, is black spruce. Typically it's pretty flat. And, you know, we have our lightning detection system. So we look at a lightning map and you get, you know, that day's lightning come up with a flight route, basically chase the lightning after the storm, and you'll go hop in a fixed-wing aircraft and go fly those routes and look for smokes, essentially, because, like I said, there's a lot of land out there that many people don't see. Or, you know, we do get phone calls from, you know, general aviation traffic or commercial aviation traffic that will report a smoke. But, I mean, there's some days when you're chasing lightning. I'm, I've had days where you're doing 20 to 30 fire reports because you're just following that storm and you're watching it throw mm -hmm. lightning out and it's starting another new fire, another new fire. Some days can be real busy like that. I've done that all across the North Slope from like Point Hope almost all the way to Uptiavik, I think they call it now, Old Barrow. And uh, it's some vast landscape out there. So a lot of potential for ignitions that nobody's going to see. And then you can determine, you know, where that fire starts based on the protection level. Those are pre-identified protection levels, areas on maps, whether there's uh, native allotments or cabins or whatever it might be that requires protection, you know, determine 
you know, conversation with the duty officer, whether we're going to take action on the fire or not. And then it's typically, you know, hit the buzzer for a load of jumpers and air attack and fire bosses and start rolling that way and do what you can do. And then you'll go back out and kind of monitor, do, do monitoring yeah. flights then so if, for those limited or. Yeah, even the limited fires, because obviously, just because they're in limited area doesn't mean they're going to stay within that limited area. There's, it's just an imaginary line. It's not a hard wall. <laughs> so basically, once it crosses that line, it may go into full or, you know, there may be uh, native allotments within limited jurisdictions, which we have to protect native allotments. So that, or like I said, it may move into some modified land or full or whatever, because Sometimes right outside of, say, a village, a village is critical right outside the village is full and limited, so it could burn towards the village. So, yeah, I definitely want to monitor them. Typically, every couple of days, you'll get up and just see how the fires progress. And, you know, and then you can kind of draw a big picture wise, like, you know, the fire is moving this far from point A to point B, you know, in a couple of days, it'll probably be at these cabins or this village. So, you can kind of determine, you know, based on fire behavior, what tactics you'll need to take to uh, protect the, the resources at risk or the values at risk, I should say. A lot happening from the air. Yeah, it can get busy sometimes. It's fun. I enjoy it. It's, uh, I always tell people it's uh, high stress, but short duration because the plane only holds so much gas. So <laughs> you got to go back down on the ground at some point or another. Take a little breather. Yeah. Sometimes that's all it is, is a quick breather and splash of gas and turn around and go again. All right, great. What is your favorite experience that you've had working for Alaska Fire Service? Oh, there's many, quite a few. I'd say, I mean, I think the greatest thing working for Alaska Fire Service in general is it's a, it's a small, complex organization, but nobody really holds their nose higher than anybody else. It's a great family atmosphere, uh, social gatherings after work, whether it's, you know, for a a benefit for the Wildland Firefighter Foundation or something along those lines. Everyone's friends, it seems like. And it's, like I said, everyone just gets along really well. It is a small organization, so chances are at some point or another, you're going to be working with everybody at AFS at some fashion or another, whether it's in person, over the computer, on the telephone. So it's a great family atmosphere for sure. And I think that's the best thing about working here than being in Alaska grinding out the dark, cold winters can be challenging sometimes, but uh, you learn to embrace it. <laughs> well, thank you, Ryan, yeah, for joining me today, telling me a little about, about aviation management yeah. in Alaska. It's fun. Come on out anytime. All right. All right. Thanks. Have a great day. <laughs> you too. And thanks to all the Alaska Fire Service employees who joined me for the 18th and 19th episode of Wildfire Matters. It's been interesting to learn some of the differences in fire management operations and how we do things differently in the lower 48. I heard a lot today about it's not really different up here, but it it is. But for people that work up here, it's business as usual for how they do things in Alaska. So it's pretty awesome. To learn more about NIFSI or the BLM, please visit our website at www.nifc.gov or to learn more about Alaska Fire Service, maybe you want to start working here now. Go to blm.gov backslash Alaska Fire Service. If you have questions, comments, or topic suggestions for future podcasts, email them by visiting the nifc.gov website, scroll down to the contact us, use Wildfire Matters podcast in the subject line, and remember to follow us 
at BLM Fire on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And thank you all for listening for our two-part episode of Wildfire Matters on Alaska Fire Service. Please join us next time when we spark a conversation with Steve Shaw, Fire Management Specialist for BLM Fire at NIFSI. He is also an incident commander on a Great Basin incident management team. We will talk about preparing for initial attack fires and managing larger, more complex fires. Until then, stay safe and be wildfire aware. Mm-hmm.